Do not let your hearts be troubled. I want to open today with another one of our our lectionary readings. Uh, If you're newer to Sanctuary, we follow, uh, it's called the Lectionary, and it's a collection of scriptures, a collection of texts that communities all over the world are using as a way of guiding uh, their teaching and their hearing. And over the course of three years, if you adhere to the lectionary, you get a general sense of the, the full arc of the scriptures. And so one of our texts for today comes to us out of Acts chapter 7, verses 55 through 60. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he, talking about Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their eyes and their ears with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. The word of the Lord. There are a couple of things that trouble me out of these texts today. I mean, we have Jesus saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then we keep reading and we stumble on this story of Stephen and his martyrdom. Right before all this business with Stephen, if you don't know the story, he's been preaching to the Sanhedrin about Jesus, which is problematic for the Sanhedrin because here is Stephen calling Jesus the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Sanhedrin remember crucifying that guy not that long ago. Messiahs might be a lot of things, but they're not criminals. They're not people who die. So, the text says, they gnashed their teeth at him, and they go after Stephen. And then we're told that Stephen has a vision, that in this moment when they're coming against him, he has this vision, his eyes are opened, and he sees into heaven. And he sees into heaven, he sees Jesus at the right hand of God, which is not the thing that you announce to the people who want to kill you for claiming that Jesus is Lord. The rest of the story moves pretty quickly. They begin stoning him, and then in very Christ-like fashion, Stephen prays for those who are doing this to him, asking for their forgiveness. Lord, do not hold this sin against them, he says. By the time Stephen is having a vision of Jesus, by the time he's gazing into heaven and the glory of God, It seems to me that Stephen might have thought this was all going to go a little differently. (laughs) I mean, imagine being in this moment. You've just stood up for Jesus. You're preaching the gospel to unbelievers. They're gnashing their teeth. They're coming at you. And the next thing you know, you're having a vision of Jesus with God in heaven. I mean, if you're anything like me, you might be thinking this whole thing's about to turn around real quick. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Stephen dies. We understand Stephen to be the first Christian martyr. That's who Stephen is to us. 
But to be sure, there were plenty of other martyrs in the ancient world, including Jewish martyrs. And most of those other martyrs, they die with a word of vengeance on their lips. They die promising that their God is going to avenge their death, that their God is going to curse those people who are responsible. And what makes Stephen unique to us is that he dies asking God's forgiveness for the perpetrators. And maybe that is the purpose of Stephen's vision. That's why he has this moment where he's gazing into heaven and he sees God and Jesus standing at his right hand. We'd like it if that vision was for the purpose of rescuing Stephen because we think or we hope that it could mean rescue for us. But it seems that the purpose wasn't to rescue him, but to remind him of the love and the mercy that we find in Christ, the better way of Jesus. And it's from that vision that Stephen can have compassion because Christ has shown him compassion. There's a great story in the Old Testament of how not to do this. Now, I need to be careful because anytime we talk about David, uh, things can get a little, a little hairy. We love David, and in a lot of our imaginations, like David can do no wrong, but David did plenty wrong, and we're going to talk about that wrong just a little bit. There's a, a moment in his life where King David is fleeing for his life because his own son, Absalom, is leading a rebellion against him. And while he's fleeing, this guy named Shimei is throwing stones at David and cursing at him. And even though David's own men want to go kill this guy, David says, you know what? God might have actually inspired his cursing. Maybe there's something to what he's saying. I mean, think about David's imagination. He's going, my son has turned against me. He's leading a rebellion. I've been chased out of my own kingdom. There might be something going on in me that is cursed. Maybe this guy, Shimei, is, is right. So he says, don't kill him. And he actually makes an oath to spare his life. Later on in the story, Absalom dies. And Shimei comes to David and he asks him for forgiveness. And David refuses to kill him. And then he actually makes an oath that he will not kill him, that he will spare his life. So honorable, so merciful, so compassionate, so much like Jesus. And then we turn a couple of pages and David is on his deathbed. And he's talking to his son Solomon. And he says to Solomon, you know, about Shimei, <laughs> I swore to him by the Lord that I would not put you to death. But you didn't make that promise. So he says to him, you must bring his gray head down with blood. Now, obviously, we are not ordering hits on people on our deathbeds. But this is often the posture that we take when we think about being merciful or we think about not letting our hearts be troubled because we think in the end they're going to get theirs. And we use it as a comfort as a reassurance, but that's not the way of Jesus. These are Jesus' words to the disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Most often we hear that as a word of comfort, like, oh, don't be afraid. Everything's going to be fine. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry about it. Don't fret. Don't be afraid. But we have to hear these words as commands. Do not let your hearts be troubled. We have to hear these as words of agency, as words of creative permissions, as authorizations that empower us to live from our hearts. Do not let it happen. We are the ones at the wheel. We are the ones at the door. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Yet, there is so much that is troubled and troubling around us. And it may even seem that it's wrong to be told not to be troubled by it, as if we could control the trouble. We can't control the trouble of the world, but Jesus tells us it's our hearts that is ours to keep. We can control what happens in our hearts with the trouble. Proverbs 4, 23 says, keep your heart with vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with vigilance, because that's the place where you are going to live from, where your attitudes and your postures toward your neighbor are going to take shape and then become embodied in your words and in your actions. This is what Stephen knows and what we have to learn that we can only settle our heart by looking to Jesus, by knowing how to behold him. Confident that whatever happens, however bad the trouble gets, it's not too much trouble for Jesus. Does this mean that we will always be safe? No, but it does mean we will always be kept by the one who tells us, do not let your hearts be troubled. It would actually be troubling if we didn't experience the troubledness of the world. Like if we were just aloof to it. That we had a sense that trouble isn't trouble. <laughs> but we shouldn't be ashamed by being able to acknowledge what the trouble is. Having a sense of trouble is not something to be ashamed of. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's human to witness the troubledness of the world. But the troubled heart is not human. That's what Jesus is saying. There is much to be troubled by, but if your heart becomes troubled, that's not the heart of the human that God created you to be. Our New Testament text for today opens out of 1 Peter. Like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk. How can infants make themselves long? They can't. It's natural for them to long, just like it's natural for us to witness the troubledness of the world. Again, this is God giving us agency. Another example of this comes out of Proverbs 14 that tells us, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy is grief. This is not a matter of feeling the ache or grief in our hearts, because we will. 
That's just part of the human experience. You are going to experience grief and ache and joy and singing and laughter and sometimes all at the very same time. That's the wisdom of Proverbs. That's the wisdom it's sharing with us. It's that you may experience grief and you may be experiencing joy, but we shouldn't think about them as independent moments. Sometimes the grief and the joy are all at once. It doesn't mean you're confused. It doesn't mean that you aren't seeing the world rightly. It means that you are a human being. Even laughter can end in aching. The ache and the grief and the trouble, what we have to remember is that those things are not the heart itself. It isn't the place where our life is flowing from. Our life doesn't flow from the grieving and the aching. Our life flows from a different center. If it is, if your heart becomes the ache, if your heart becomes troubled, the text says that it's like poison to our life and the lives of those around us. And here's the trick. We know when our hearts begin to turn, when our hearts begin to be poisoned, because we begin to fear. We start to fear. Jesus was troubled, but his heart was the way of life and truth. The trouble for him was witnessing death and deceit in a world that is meant for life and for truth. Don't worry if you feel troubled. Jesus was troubled. If you look at John 12, you look at John 13, Jesus is said to be troubled twice. Two times it mentions that Jesus is troubled in those days and in those moments leading up to the crucifixion. And then in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples twice, do not let your hearts be troubled. The second time Jesus says it to them, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I've said it before, but this is why we must, we must be weary of any voices who are telling us who and what to be afraid of. Any voices that you are listening to that is inspiring fear more than it is compassion. If it's inspiring fear rather than Jesus' words of do not be afraid, it's not the voice of God. And Jesus tells us, commands us, do not be afraid. That kind of fear, it only comes from a heart that's troubled from a heart that would rather see our enemies be punished rather than forgiven. Jesus commands us, don't do that. You have agency. You have power and control over the state of your heart. You can guard your heart from that fear and from that vengeance. If you've walked down our kids' hall this week, you notice we've brought in some new natural wood elements into the building. We uh, had a window that was uh, broken late Friday, early Saturday, around, around midnight. 
And I, I got the, the alert on my phone. I was asleep. And I didn't, I didn't come rushing up to see what was going on. But first thing yesterday morning, I got out of bed and I made my way over here to see, see what had happened. And I was praying, I was hoping that it was a false alarm because we get those, we get those quite a bit. But this one seemed a little different. Like it wasn't like a, like a, hey, somebody tried to pull the door. It was like, oh, the, like the shattered glass monitor. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how that one just, you know, isn't, isn't real. So I made my way up here and sure enough, glass is all broken out. And looking at it, my first thought was, you know, man, some punk like threw a rock or a brick through the window. And how terrible, right, to experience that like, kind of vandalism. These are all the thoughts racing through my head. But I came inside and I'm looking for the thing, right? Like I'm looking for the object that got thrown through the window. And there's no rock. There's no, there, there's no brick um, something a little scarier than that. Uh, it turns out that our window caught a stray bullet from these apartments next, next door to us. And I mean, my first thought was like, I got to call the police. And I'm going to go out in that grass field and I'm going to go look for a bullet casing. We're going to get some fingerprints off this thing. We are going to make this right. We're going to find this guy who did it, you know, make him pay for it. <laughs> Julie Green asked me if I watch a lot of Dateline. I said, no. <laughs> to which she said, I do. I'll have this solved in 15 minutes. <laughs> but that was my impulse, right? We got to find these guys. We got to make them pay. Whoever did this, we've got to bring them to justice. And then I started thinking, man, what a scary world they must live in. The kind of world where they feel like they have to carry a gun to protect themselves. The kind of world where they think the only solution to their problems is having a gun and using it against another human being. And there was some part of me that was grateful that it was like, well, at least it wasn't somebody who was like trying to shoot our window, right? Just something stray that didn't need to happen. And the more I was thinking about them, about the world that they live in, the kind of fears they must experience, how scared they must be, the more I began to have compassion toward whoever this is that, that did this. We'll never know. We'll never figure it out. That's not the point. The point is, it was a moment standing at that intersection of going, this is trouble, but will I let my heart be troubled? Or can I acknowledge the trouble and choose to respond from a place of life, a place of, of wholeness, a place of compassion, a place of, of love, a place of forgiveness? That's what's in Stephen's mind in that moment when the worst of things is happening to him. Before he was a Christian, C.S. Lewis would describe how he had these, these two poles in his mind. This is how he understood his, his life to work, his brain to function. And he said on, on one pole was the rational mind that was only concerned with reason and with logic and what made sense. And then there was the other pole, the part of his mind that was obsessed with poetry and myth. 
And he thought these two things can never be reconciled. You either have facts and science or you have poetry and myth and story, romance. And he always put the, the, the Christian scriptures, when he had to try to find a category, he always put it in the category of myth. But his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, he challenged him one day to think differently about this. He said that perhaps rather than any myth, the Christian story was the truth on which all myths were based. Two weeks later, C.S. Lewis became a Christian. And when he talks about that experience, he says it was a baptism of his imagination. I love that. A baptism of his imagination. Suddenly the world wasn't divided in myth and science and story and fact, poetry and story, all of these different divisions. Suddenly he experienced a baptized imagination, a new imagination, an imagination that allowed him to see the world differently. And this is what we need if we're going to be people who live from that place of not letting our hearts be troubled. We need, we need new imaginations, braver imaginations, imaginations that believe that this dream of God's new world just might not be a dream after all, but is somehow a reality that we can live in right now. There is so much to be troubled by but your heart is yours to keep. I lost track this week of the number of shootings that took place around the country. I couldn't keep up. There's much to be troubled by. Your heart is yours to keep. You, with the power of the Spirit, can imagine a better world. That's what we can do. And in God's new world, we are the ones announcing to those who are living in fear, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Amen.